Uh, before I get started, I just really want to personally thank anyone who was a part of our event yesterday, whether in prayer, giving, uh, financially, or just acts of service. Guys, I, I'm just overwhelmed at uh, your heart and your uh, servanthood, and we really blessed a lot of people yesterday. Um, such a testimony to the Lord, so thank you. May you be blessed in the kingdom of God. May treasures abound for everything you've done, everything you laid your hand to. Uh, may you receive rewards, because it was amazing. I think we fed uh, somewhere around 500 people. We were out of food by 2 o'clock, everything, we, we got rid of everything. I, I was nervous that we would have all this stuff left over. Uh, and man, we needed more. Praise God. Um, so we were able to bless a lot of people, guys that did haircuts. My goodness, they stood on their feet for five hours giving haircuts without a break. Um, it's amazing. It's just awesome. Um, so many people were blessed, and it was just amazing. Oh, if your child lost a tooth, I have it. <laughs> it's worth a dollar. <laughs> I might keep it. Uh, things that happen at church. You know, that's one of the, the worst parts of getting old, you know. Um, when I was young, I used to get a dollar from my mom for, for teeth that, I, that fell out of my head. And now my kids get $20 from her for the same teeth. <laughs> like, thanks. Show me where I rate, mom. Like, thank you for that. <laughs> I guess the... <laughs> They lose a tooth, they get 20 bucks. Yep. All right. Um, so thank you all yesterday for, for those of you who, um, who served and who were um, operating in the kingdom of the, of, of, the, of the Lord. We're planning on doing that again next year. And man, we, had, we learned a lot. And we're going to adjust some things and, and uh, hopefully do, do a little better. Um, so, but those of you who are inter interested in getting involved in our outreaches, um, you can get with, where's Jared? Back in the back on the slides. So you can get with Jared. Jared, you did a phenomenal job. Abby, good job, guys. Wow, y'all did such a good job at orchestrating all of that. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. So we're, we're, we're going to be doing um, uh, some more stuff here soon. And if you want to be involved in that, you're more than welcome to. And you're always welcome to meet with Brian. On Saturday mornings, if you have a heart to outreach, um, get with him. And they do a phenomenal job sharing the love of Jesus and just ministering to the one, which is a more valuable ministry than ministering to a lot. And so uh, if we can't do the one that's in front of us, then we're not qualified to do anything else. Amen. And that's actually the place where you have the most good. You, you really meet with people. Um, you ask me, I've preached for over 25 years, corporate services never usually change people's minds. But a one-on-one -on -one encounter with people and a relationship that you establish with them does something. It gives them hope and gives somebody to walk with when they have difficulties and trials. You with me? Yes. All right. So we're going to get into what I have on my heart this morning. So I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. 
I've been on quite a few series, and this one here is kind of like the the return from the pinnacle, I guess, if you will. The last few series I've been on, we've been gradually up, increasing up to a, a point, which we hit, um, hopefully, prayerfully, we hit last week, um, coming into the reality of the kingdom of God. Now it's time to bring that re- practical reality back into the earth. And so if you have been uh, going through the series, I would really recommend you do that. If you've missed any of them, I, I would recommend you go back and listen to them. They're all um, on different um, podcast platforms, just Google or search Proclaiming Jesus in any one of those podcast platforms. You'll find those messages or you can go to our website. Um, so we, we talked about the importance of the kingdom of God. So Jesus came to establish that kingdom and then he went to his place where he's waiting for us. Amen. He left his Holy Spirit here. Everybody understand that the part of God that you experience on Sunday mornings in your prayer closet is not Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Jesus is in heaven. Uh, you know, he makes occasional trips down here from what I hear. Um, I've never personally had one. So, but I have an interaction with the Holy Spirit of God. With me? And so that part of him, his spirit, his life force, his, his, his DNA rests inside of us. And there's a practical expression of the kingdom of God in human form. And it doesn't look like what the church Uh, has said it's supposed to look like. So we're going to find out what that's supposed to look like. So enter the next series we're in Ephesians. We're going to go through every chapter and we're going to go verse by verse. Okay. If you had to ask me one of my most favorite epistles that Paul ever wrote, it would be this book. If you took out the rest of the Bible of the New Testament, um, at least the, the epistles here, if only we had Ephesians, it would be enough to make the trajectory of the church reach the intention God established in the beginning. If you've never got into this book and you don't understand this book, prayerfully what we're going to go through is going to open your mind to something that you've never seen before. But I encourage you as you read the Word of God, read slowly. I watch people pass certain words, certain phrases, as if it's just mere content and they lose the reality that God was intending to show them. You with me? So we're going to talk about the essence of the practicality of kingdom living, which Paul beautifully outlines in the book of Ephesians. It is the actual mandate of what the church is supposed to be. And when we talk about Ephesians, there's a lot of emphasis given to chapter 6. In fact, the church is almost spiritually drunk on spiritual warfare. She has this obsession of wanting to be vocalized toward the second heavens and making demons bow whenever she's submitting to them on her day-to-day life. We think the kingdom of God actually exists in word. In other words, someone told you that if you say the right mantra or chant and put Jesus at the end of it, that principalities are going to obey you. It's not how it works, which is why most of Christianity struggles to not feel victimized by something of the world. Do you understand that principalities, by their very nature, their design is to rebel? They will not just listen to you because you put in Jesus' name at the end of your prayer. 
I, I'm sorry, whoever told you that didn't tell you the entire gospel. There's a story in Acts where seven ministers of God try to cast out a devil from a man, and they say something that's very familiar that we know in the church, but we don't apply it to our life. And we wonder why the devil doesn't listen. You understand what happened in that story? Paul, I know. Jesus, I know. Who are you? They used the right name. They used the right verbiage. They used the right testimony. They were on the right mission. They were on the right evangelical course. Yet hell did not surrender to their confession. You understand this? And there's a reason. How many of you guys know that when Paul wrote most of the New Testament, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit? How many of you guys know that the Holy Spirit doesn't just throw out random, quote unquote, nuggets? <laughs> there is an order to God. And when Jesus speaks, it's not randomly. He's not talking at issues. He's addressing a flow of life. We're the ones that compartmentalize scripture, broke it up into chapters and verses when it's an entire letter that's supposed to flow from beginning to end. Everybody wants to jump to chapter six and tell the demon to get off your kids, but nobody's willing to raise their kids in the admonition of the Lord. You with me? Wives want their husbands to obey Jesus, but they won't submit to their husbands. Because they disagree. Nowhere in scripture does it say that submission is dependent upon agreement. Just ask God. He expects us to submit all the time. And we constantly disagree with him. Or is that some other church? How many of you guys have had acts of disobedience in your life towards the Lord? Do you know what that is? That's you disagreeing with God and telling him you're going to do it your way because you think he's wrong. <laughs> That's all that is. Are you with me? So when we look at Ephesians, we must look that chapter one comes before chapter two. And there's a reason for that. Chapter three comes before chapter four and so on. Until you finally come to a people, if you look at chapters one through five, who are filled and clothed with God, ushering kingdom reality in, manifesting God in scripture, they finally get to chapter six, and then we see principalities begin to move. Does this make sense? Do you guys realize that even under the Old Testament covenant, when, when Jesus was still alive before the cross, he sent his disciples out to heal. And many times they were able to heal before the cross, before salvation, before the blood was spilled, just by the very power of the name. But do you also realize that there was times where they couldn't beat a certain specific power? And they were confused by that. Why can't we cast this thing out? Because their life had not grown up into their theology yet. And Christ's had. He was the word made flesh. They were just merely speaking a truth over a scenario. Does this make sense to you? The reason the church is powerless in many situations of her life is because she has not yet taken on the flesh and bone of God. She's satisfied with her theology and her Bible studies. Everybody's got a revelation, but very few people have the character.
Listen, I've heard it all. I get people coming up to me all the time wanting to tell me their revelation or their this or their that. Oh man, brother, let me tell you something. God really spoke to me about when he's going to return and, and this and that and the importance of this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, man, I heard this stuff when I was 15. You're just now catching on. And they want me to be impressed by everything they're learning, what God's showing them. I'm like, I don't care what God's showing you. You know what I care? How you treat your wife. I don't care if you know the day and the hour that Jesus is coming back. It doesn't matter. Because if you don't treat your wife right, Jesus coming back is actually not a good thing for you. You need to pray that he postpones it for your sake. To understand Ephesians, we've got to understand that the intention of God came first. What I want to show you in the outline of Ephesians, especially chapter 1, it's an absolute mind shift to see what Paul is trying to address in chapter 1. And the, and the encouragement and the effort he goes through to be able to shape people's minds off of a certain reality into what, he, what God intended. The way he starts the whole, whole gospel here, the whole epistle is absolutely amazing. And it's something the church still hasn't realized. We're still trying to deal with the effects of our sin, and God's expecting us to step into his reality. And if you're not still dealing with the effects of your sin, I pretty much guarantee you you're dealing with the effects of somebody else's. Everybody in here, just about everybody in here, I'd say 98%, some of y'all have parental discrepancies in your life. <laughs> I don't care if you're 60. You know why people were hurt by the church? It's usually come from the parental idea. I had a guy specifically spending massive amounts of time on me why we should obey all 633 commandments. And spent all this stuff, and again, I'd heard it all before. And I knew his family, and I knew his family life, and I finally stopped him. I said, you know, here's what's not impressive to me at all. None of your family wants your gospel. They've all left you, forsaken you, and they want nothing to do with you. If you couldn't even gain your own family, sir, how are you expecting to gain me? If your gospel has not the power to deliver your own family, your gospel does not have the power to deliver me. And until your family values what you're saying out of your mouth, I will not value it either. Guess what? He didn't have anything to say. Because everybody's got an opinion until the home life is starting to get stared into. Is that right? We can hallelujah and shout and everything else, but how our actual practical relationships evolve in our life depends upon the character of Christ in us. This is what a book of Ephesians is about. You got, did you make it to verse 1? All right. Let me, let me say this. The devil does not fear the word. Those of you who are into positive confession, the devil does not fear the word. You need to remember that. If he feared the word, he wouldn't have quoted it to the word himself in, in Matthew chapter 4. The devil does not fear the word of God. He fears the word made flesh. That's what he fears. 
He fears a person embodying Jesus Christ. He does not fear positive confession. Positive confession doesn't bore a hole into the spiritual reality and let the spiritual God, blessings of God drain through onto your life. <laughs> That's not how that works. Do you understand that if you bear the image of Jesus in your life, there is a constant portal open over you no matter where you go and what you do? You with me? You understand me? Okay. Some of y'all are like, man. Okay. So I, I want you to understand that the mere confession of Christian terms, the idle use of the name of Jesus, does not convince principalities to submit. Do you understand? Your, the, the kingdom of God in your life is, is not in word. Let me, let me say, how many of you guys have been in a conversation in the last week or two where you're sitting there pouring your heart about what God's showing you? You can tell on the person's face that you're talking to, it really doesn't register with them. And they're just waiting for you to like get done talking so they can get done talking about what God's showing them. And neither of you are changed by each other's conversation. But that's what we think the kingdom of God is. It's this power struggle. We're trying to one-up everybody with what our revelations are. And that's, that doesn't impress the enemy. It doesn't impress God. It doesn't impress our children because they know who we really are. It takes a son who, boasts, who bears both flesh and bone of the word to intimidate the powers of darkness. It takes time, it takes submission, it takes humility, it takes obedience, it takes a walk with God. You with me? We understand in Scripture that even demons believe, correct? I think demons have sometimes more of a, a closer relationship with Jesus than some Christians do because the demons even tremble as they believe. And we have zero, very, very little fear of God in the church. All right, chapter one. Can you put it up there? I'm gonna probably I don't, I'm I'm gonna use a different translation, but we'll we'll go from this and that. From Paul, chosen by God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's people who live in Ephesus and to the faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Now, this first statement is something that most people read over. Verse 1, Paul, chosen by God. Let's just stop right there. How many of you guys know who this man was? Do you remember who he was when he, before he was Paul? How many of you guys historically know that it's, it's said from word of mouth passing down of history that he actually was one of the guy that would cut babies out of women's stomachs for the Christian followers? Killed him. This guy was a zealot. He was a very extreme religious fanatic. He pursued Christians, hunted them down, threw them in prison, and persecuted their families. 
Paul, chosen by God. Was Paul still chosen by God when he was Saul? Yeah. Did it look like he was chosen? Did he feel like he was chosen? Paul chosen by God to be an apostle, to be one that is sent. Let me ask you this. What did it have to take God to get Saul from the point he was Saul to the point where he was writing this letter sent to you Ephesians? What did it take? How much did it take to get Paul to be where he is in this point in his life to be able to pen this, this letter? He had to see Jesus. But you know what most people want to do when they see Jesus? They want to start a ministry because they've seen Jesus. And they're going to call it something like, I've seen Jesus ministries. The asterisk is, and you haven't. You know what Paul did when he saw Jesus? He went 14 years to the desert alone isolated, separated, and relearned everything he thought he knew. 14 years. And you're talking about a guy who had the first five books of, of the Old Testament memorized, if not more. We're not talking about a crack addict here. We're talking about a moral man who of himself says, as touching the law, I was blameless. So if you think that morality has everything to do with your Christianity, you've missed the idea. Morality is a byproduct. Paul had morality before he met Jesus. Understand this. Paul, chosen by God. Now, did God choose Paul when he was born, or did he choose Paul before he was born? So God's choosing of Paul predated Paul. What about you? So then why do you act as if your past has more power over your eternal past? See, do we realize the process it takes that God's willing to undergo to make a sent one? See, everything Paul went through in the negative sense brought him to the reality that these Ephesians needed to be for Paul to be to them. Everything negative that he went through was ordained by God in a sense so that God could bring this man to a point in life that these people could see Messiah Jesus in the flesh and bone of Paul's life. To be sent by God. One indicates the preparation, but it also indicates a pre-establishment. That I've chosen you. Does this make sense? Paul begins to realize something in the deserts of Arabia. That God's eternal past predates his current condition. Paul begins to understand that the intention of God overrides, supersedes everything else that's happened in his life. And this is what gives him the authority to speak on things that not only are present, but things past and things to come. Because Paul has stepped out of time and has looked at God as he is. And he doesn't judge God by his life anymore. He judges his life by God. 
Does this make sense to you? So was Paul chosen on the road to Damascus? See, that's what we think when we read the scriptures. We think Paul was chosen on the road to Damascus. You think you were chosen when you got saved. Whose reality predates whose reality? Did your reality come first? Or did his reality for you come first? Which one are you living in? Does this make sense to you? Even when he was killing Christians, Paul was chosen. When you were running around being stupid in the world like I was, you were. But how many times do you understand that people can, they they live the entirety of their Christian life trying to undo the small segment of time that they're conscious of and never step into the reality of the consciousness of God who was conscious of them before they were conscious of the time that they're in? I can't repeat that, sorry. God had an eternal plan for not only Ephesus, but Paul. And this letter being penned right here is the eternal reality come into summation of this pinnacle of revelation that Paul's revealing. Not only as the man he's become, but the calling into these people who are are what they're supposed to become as well. He has the authority to write this letter because he's become this letter himself. He took the time to understand what God's reality for his life was, and that gave him the authority to supersede every other spiritual reality, which gives him the ability to speak on Ephesians 6 because he's already seated above those powers. He's not trying to convince himself by positive confessions. He's worked out the flesh and bone and blood of God in his life. And that started with Ephesians chapter 1 for Paul himself. The revelation of the glory of God in the church. Does this make sense to you? It'll make sense as it's going on if it doesn't. All right. So these Ephesians, when Saul was Saul, were waiting on him to recognize God's eternal plan for his life. There are people out there waiting for you to recognize the eternal plan of God for your life. And if you're sucked into some sort of cesspool of merry-go-round existence based upon your sin, you are keeping people from the eternal plan that God has for them through you. If your only reality is what has been done to you or what you have done to others, and you're still trying to get past that, you're never going to move into what God ultimately attended before you you screwed up. We take this small segment of time and make everything about that when we existed in the mind of God, eternal past, and we will exist in him in eternal glory and eternal future. And we govern everything by this little moment of time in which we feel like we screwed the entire thing up. Most Christians' relationship with Jesus is entirely contextual to sin. Does this make sense? They're conscious of sin nature and sin reality because they don't know where they actually began. Their genesis escapes them. 
They don't know where they began. They thought that they, you think that maybe the day you got saved is when the day that God called you. God called you before you even had an existence. And until we step into the reality that God had before we even got here, we're never going to realize the power of the reality we have over the principality. Because if you recognize this life only, you're subject to this life only, and those things subject themselves to this life. There's something greater than our existence, and Paul talks about us being with God before we existed, and he talks about us being with God after we've existed, seated in heavenly places. In those two realities, we exist with him. This one's the only one we're not convinced of. See, your past is important. At some point in your life, you will come to a place where you rejoice over that dark season of your life. And you will thank God for every moment of it. Because it's been redefined. You won't see it as a stain on your life. You will see it as a tool of brokenness to bring you to where you needed to be. And you'll stop spending the rest of your Christianity trying to pay for what you did before you became a Christian. Was Paul worthy to be sent? No. Was Saul worthy? No. Are you? It doesn't matter whether we're worthy. It matters whether we are sent, whether we're chosen or not. Amen? Imagine how much Paul had to actually let go of to be able to tell these people of the riches of Christ or the preordinance of God that he's about to get into. Imagine what he had to get past in his own mind of what he did to other people to be able to lead these people into their future reality. Imagine the, the, the freedom of mind he had to come into to be able to tell people that you need to look forward into your future for what God has for you in your life. I mean, think of what he did to the church. To stand before a group of people knowing that you might have killed some of their cousins and uncles because this was a very small society. People knew you. Somebody there had the testimony that that guy killed my best friend's cousin. Think of what he had to get through. Praise God he got through it. And somebody else will praise God when you finally get through yours. See, if we can only see our past, we'll never be able to lead people into what existed before their past. Let me say that again. If we can only see our past, we'll never be able to lead people into what existed before their past. What existed before our past? Jesus. God. God started thinking about you eternal past. You know, I used to think about that scripture that he, the thoughts that he has toward us are more than the sands of the sea. And I'm thinking, man, he's got to think about me 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because I've only, I'm like 45. I mean, that's, like, that's a lot of thinking. And God was like, no, I was thinking about you way before you got here. And I'll be thinking about you way after you leave. So whose reality is real? 
Do you, do, you, do you guys understand that God exists outside of time? I don't think we do. Because we make him obey time all the time, and he's outside of time. It says he's the author and the finisher of our faith. How in the world is he the finisher of our faith if we've never got there yet? He exists outside of time. He exists outside of time. In his mind, it's already been done. When he said it is finished, he wasn't lying. See, that's that, that, that thought is the exact thought that people have, that one day it will happen. No, that's the problem with your Christianity, is that you're waiting on something that's already occurred. You think the finishing is supposed to happen? He said it's already been done. I, I, would, I will believe what Jesus says versus what anybody else says. And if you're constantly waiting for something to be done that's already finished, you're in a, you're in a time loop. You're in this, this warp that's just going to sit there and chase its tail. So if God's taking care of my beginning and he's taking care of my end, all I have to do is right now with him because everything else is secure. You with me? To get past your past, you have to go back farther than yourself. But when you make it about yourself, you'll never go any farther than where you are. I mean, my wife and I started thinking about our children way before we ever had them. I'm not God, so I didn't know what they were going to look like or their personalities, but he knew. And if I, as a horrible, broken human being, can start thinking about my children before they're even here, what makes you think God can't do the same thing? See, he knew you before you ever showed up. He called you before you ever screwed up. You were created in his mind perfect. Which means, guys, you're not a victim. Why? Because you were healed before you ever hurt. You were made whole before you were ever rejected. You were accepted before you were rejected. See, his reality over us predates ours, but yet we think ours dictates his. Somebody rejects you, you actually go into some sort of rejection. Why? You were accepted before you were rejected. Why does this rejection have anything to do with a force in your life? It's because you're not recognizing what came before your pain. Your reality, his reality. Does this make sense? Sent, Paul, chosen by God. Chosen by God, that statement, chosen by God, happened before Paul ever got here. Paul recognized that. He figured that out. He figured out God's reality predated his. And he figured out that's more, a more secure reality. And if God chose me before I ever did all these things wrong, then God must have a plan because of all these things I've done wrong. So that can be trusted. Does this make sense? So this is Ephesians. We've got to understand the order of God. What came first? His intention or ours? His healing or our sin? Which came first? Why are we so 
confused, when we are growing in Christ and dealing with realities that are difficult and seeing flesh in our life and believing that stuff. It's because we're looking at this reality and not the one he's already established for us. Because when you look at the one he's already established for us, there's nothing that's going to happen in your day-to-day -day life that you know that he hasn't touched, preordained, and already touched into that reality. You're like, I can trust this. God, thank you for exposing this in my life. It's because you're ready for me to go to stage two. And I will not be beaten by this because you've already finished my faith and I believe that you are the author and the finisher. When you said it's finished over my life, it's done. See, most Christians, honestly, are still waiting for Jesus to do something. When Jesus is waiting for you to come into what he's already done. This is why I said earlier, so many of you in this place, even if you didn't come forward, your Christianity has become your burden. It's dogma. It's verbiage you fight over with other people with theological differences. And nobody's convinced. You understand? God's plan is bigger than ours. It's bigger than our segment of life that we call our past. So the, the, the order of the church that Paul's about to lay out in Ephesians is rooted and grounded in God. It's not rooted and grounded in us. It's not rooted and grounded in our sin. It's not rooted and grounded in anything else. It's rooted and grounded in God. Does this make sense to you? All right. So the power of the church is not found in our moment, but it's, in, it's found in the ultimate reality that, that our genesis was in God. That's the power of the church. We began in Christ. And that's where we're going to end. This is why the Bible says greater is he who's in you than he's in the world. Because our origin, where we began, predates all of our screw-ups. This is why the enemy loves to manipulate you with your sin. If we, are, if we were blood conscious, it wouldn't matter whether the enemy showed up or not. <laughs> That's what I do anymore. If I realize some form of my human nature, I just say, thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness. And devil, you stare at the blood. But what a religious spirit wants you to do is add to the cross and make you pay a little bit more for your sin to prove to God you're actually sorry. And you're going to try to improve upon the sacrifice of Jesus, and that's a disgusting, vile, religious spirit. The Bible says if you confess and forsake your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you. The problem is, is you're waiting to feel forgiven. <laughs> I, it ain't in there. I've looked. Nowhere does it say you're going to feel forgiven. Yeah. All right. So everything he went through, everything he went through brought him to this moment. 
that Paul was sent to the Ephesians. He stepped out of his life. He stepped out of, uh, uh, into the eternal reality of God, into the existence of God, and it qualifies him now to pen this letter because he's writing it from the proper standpoint. He's not sucked into their reality. He's pulling them out of theirs into his. Does this make sense? All right. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's move on. All right, so we're going to go to... All right. So time and reality, time, reality, and sin, okay, the three things that, that move us the most. Time, reality, and sin have no ability to overpower the eternal pre-existing God. Yet we try to use those three as some sort of demonic trifecta to throw at his face all the time. Time, reality, and sin, either ours or somebody else's. And we try to get God to submit to that. He is outside of our life. Do you understand that? He will rule from ages and generations to come. This thing that we call life is a blip on the eternal radar. And we're trying to get him to bow to it constantly. And he says, no, this thing is much bigger than you. And at some point, you're going to enter my reality. And that's going to predate and, pre and outlast your reality. You with me? See, who we are in him gives us more authority to take control over this body and this reality. Who we are in him gives us more ability to take control over this reality. This is why Jesus was able to perform so many signs and wonders and miracles. It wasn't because he was perfect, guys. He was perfect when he was young. What gave him the ability to do this is because he lived outside of time. Jesus lived outside of time. He was constantly in the realm of the Father. He said, I only do what I see my Father do, which means he was constantly in God's reality. He was not in the reality of the need. I love what Smith Wigglesworth says, you're never going to be able to pray the prayer of faith while looking at the person who needs it. Jesus was outside of our reality. That's why he brought kingdom bread down. That's why he fed nations. That's why he did what he did. Because he was outside. He was operating. He was bringing in something from another realm into this one. He was constantly existing with God, watching God, seeing God, alone with God. And he was bringing that reality into us, into, into everything he touched. He knew where he came from. He even said it in scripture. And now I'm going back to where I started. And that's the same reality we should have. We should know where we came from, and we should know at some point we're going back to where we started. We're going back to the heart of God. That's what, that's what dying and going to heaven is. It's, it's, it's returning to the original reality that God birthed us in. His. This momentary lapse in time is just to convince those people who aren't convinced that Abba loves you, and he's got a plan for you, and it predates anything you've done. And it's outside of your reality of time. And if you don't get into the family of God, then you're going to be eternally rejected from it. And that's our job. Does this make sense to you? So it's often the weaknesses that we hate in our past that qualifies us to be familiar with those who, to whom we are sent. All right, verse two. I pray that God our Father... And our Lord Jesus Christ will be kind to you and bless you with peace. This is how he starts his letter to the Ephesians. He's qualifying himself in a different reality. God chose me and everybody knew his testimony. God chose who I am even before I was what I was. I'm here by God himself. 
And he himself later on in many other places says, I'm unqualified. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the least of the apostles. Yes? He knows that he's not worthy, but he also qualifies himself. But I worked harder than them all. And he says, I pray that God, our Father, that word our, completely removes this isolated, idolatrous, personal relationship with Jesus that separates you from the body. Our Father. You know, you people are like, well, I don't have to go to the church because I am the church. Well, my pinky is a part of my body, but if it doesn't attach itself to my body, it's useless. I don't have to be connected to the body because I am the body. Well, you're a part of the body. You aren't the whole body, and whoever told you that lied to you. I love, I love, the, I love the tangle with the religious devils. Well, I don't have to go to church because I am the church. Cut off your hand. It's still part of your body, but see how well it works. That's you over there flopping in the corner trying to lay hands on somebody. And it's the Adams family. It's disgusting. Nobody wants it. It's actually scary. People operating outside of body. It's, 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 that's, no wonder the world doesn't want it because then you get these Bible bashers that are separated from the body and they're not utilizing other gifts and callings that other people might need. We need wisdom. You need other members of the body. You need to have people to go with you. You need to understand that it may not be your testimony and your call and your part of the body that actually is used to deliver those people. You might have to go, wait a minute, so-and-so is probably more qualified for this, not because they've been through more, but this, is, this person needs somebody like that. And you bring that person with you and say, hey, let me introduce you to so-and-so. I pray that God, our Father, and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, you see the unities he's, he's establishing there. Jesus' Father is now our Father. I pray, I pray that God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, would be kind to you and bless you with peace. See, Paul immediately takes his, his status as a father over these people. Go to the, go to the next verse. So what, what, this, what this says here is that, is that he, he gives us that he's praying for this peace over us. He's operating as a son. But you guys understand the ironic blessing, right? That may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. Be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Paul's praying for peace on this. This is so many times if you, if you watch how Paul opens his letters, he says grace and peace unto you. See, people read that as if it's just biblical language. That, well, that's how we open every letter. You know? No. See, they, these guys actually believe they had the authority to release grace and peace. So while we're praying for God to give us grace and peace, these apostolic fathers are just releasing it. Because they know they, they carry it. Now, if you don't carry it and you don't have peace and grace in your life and you try to say that to somebody, guess what? It doesn't work. And you're like, why doesn't it work? Because you're not embodying Christ enough to have that authority to be able to release that in the heavenlies where actually things begin to occur. 
you know why you have difficulty in certain things and you get step out in certain issues to minister to God and it doesn't work? You know why? You know, you know why it doesn't work? It's God showing you where you're still immature. And it's your responsibility that because it didn't work to go back to God and say, I'm the problem, you gotta fix me. Something's wrong here. And you show me what it is so that they can have Christ in fullness. Not so that you can be seen as whatever you want to be seen as. And he begins to take on a, a prayer over them that God would give them peace, shalom, rest, grace, total well-being. He prays that over them. Does this make sense? He's establishing himself as a father over the people. He takes his authority over their reality and he imparts peace to them because he's got the authority to do so. He's not just speaking in terms. He's possessed by this peace and this grace. So he releases it. This is what people need. They need to be possessed by the things that you say you know so that you can release it. You with me? Guys, there's times in my life where I've, I've, I've prayed over people and I've never said a word, but just under my breath, I'm just releasing the peace of God. And they begin to weep. Just begin to weep. And all, that's all I'm saying. Just I'm releasing peace over them. Why? Because when peace comes, the kingdom establishment comes. And when the kingdom establishment comes, guess who's next to come? The king himself. <laughs> See? So Paul sent to their fragmented reality to bring them into unity. Our father. Right? He says that, that he's telling them like our father, that indication is that he's telling them they're no longer separate entities with last names and different bloodlines. They're the family of God. They've got to realize it as the family of God and they existed as the family of God before their issues with each other. Does this make sense? You take a good look at the person sitting next to you or some of you don't know. That is your actual brother and sister in Christ. That is your family. Praise God, verse 3, the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the spiritual blessings that Christ has brought down from heaven. Again, he opens the letter with the attention of their eyes being placed off of their circumstances into the reality that they possess. That Christ has brought spiritual blessings down from heaven. Why? Because that's what kingdom reality people do. They exist in a different reality. They bring those realities down and they share them freely. You see this? He's trying to see, he's trying to show these people where they're actually placed, what they actually possess. He's trying to get their mind off their past and their sin and their issues. And he's saying, God brought us spiritual blessings down in heavenly places in Christ. Does this make sense? You see how he's establishing their reality right off the bat. Before he gets into anything else, I want you, as we go through this series, to remember that we're heading toward the spiritual warfare idea. Okay? Which means everything that comes before that has to actually come into that order. So we've got to recognize what we possess in heavenly places before we actually get to the battle we're going to. If we're not convinced of that, we're going to get there, and then the demon's going to pull some sort of ace in the hole out of his sleeve about our sin or our reality that we're not healed from, and we're going to go, ooh, He draws his attention to our possession. He draws their minds to the only origin of where they began. The God our Father. 
Where is our Father? In heaven. The fact that he calls him Father indicates that we are now a part of his family. This is our origin. This is where we began. This is who we've got backing us. These are the blessings that have come down. You see that? They came down. He's, he blessed us. That's a past sense, is it not? He blessed us. He blessed us. You're still praying for what you already have. Religious spirits just trying to make you live worthy enough to actually receive it. That's not how it works. You already have it. You have to grow up into it. He blessed us. If you don't realize that when you face Goliath, you're going to look down in your pocket and have no stones. He brought down the tools we need to emulate his eternity in this actual realm. What was the heavenly blessings of Christ? What were those things? It's the, it's the thing that Christ uh, gave us to be able to emulate his kingdom there here. You with me? Verse 4. This is amazing. What's that say? This is how he opens the letter. This is the beginning of spiritual warfare. We have to remember where we started. Just as he chose us in him. What? Before the world began. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That is what you're predestined to. That's what God has planned for you. Why do our realities have more effect on us than his? Why does somebody else's sin against you have more power over your life than what God had for you before you were sinned against? Before the world was created, we were chosen. Before pain, before rejection, before the unbelief. Paul's trying to get people to understand that if we don't get this reality, then we will never dominate the principalities that everybody else is over. When we don't learn to live outside of time, then time will take us hostage into its version of reality. So when someone sins against you, you can just go, hey, I've already been forgiven. You've already been forgiven. I'm releasing you. I'm letting you go. You know why unforgiveness is so dangerous? Because it doesn't exist in God's realm. And that's where you're actually seated. God does not have the ability to have unforgiveness. So why do you? God exists in his kingdom. His kingdom reality is supposed to be the reality that we're operating in. If you have unforgiveness in your life, it means you've submitted to a demonic prince. And then you want to tell him to leave you and your family alone when you're submitting to him? It doesn't work. You think you have the right to not forgive those people because of what they've done to you. And you, in doing that, look at everything, or don't look at everything that Jesus did for you. The pain that you went through doesn't justify the unforgiveness. Especially when you realize you were chosen to operate wholly without blame before him in love. 
Every time you operate, let me say it this way. Every time you operate in forgiveness, you are upsetting a principality. Because you're removing from that person's mind the demonic influence of shame and guilt. And you're saying, I release you. And that prince has no ability to manipulate their mind anymore. Because you operated as a son. Does this make sense? If we operate outside of a reality that we were born for, we're never going to operate in kingdom reality even though we confess it. See, prayer is a posture that has its influence outside of time. True or not? See, everything God gives for us is outside of this reality. Once you finally understand that you're not a body, you're an eternal spirit, you begin to operate in the realm that God wants you to operate in. And if you're not a body, then it doesn't matter what is done to the body because you're, that's not who you are. I'm hoping I'm cracking some heads here. Prayer is a posture that has its influence outside of time, calling into reality things of life that have already been pre-existing from God's eternal past. You with me? That Jesus is praying right now even for people who haven't even been born. <laughs> you realize that? He's the great, what? Intercessor at the right hand of God, praying. You think he's just praying for you because you're alive? He's praying for people who haven't even gotten here yet. And we say, well, how do you know that? Because in John 17, he prayed for you and you weren't here either. Prayer steps outside of its own reality to bring in a reality greater than the one we're experiencing. Does it make sense? If prayer is that, and we can access that, it also means that we are outside of that reality as well. So every time you get caught in your circumstance, you're never going to be able to usurp your power over the principality. The principality's design is to keep you caught in the circumstance. That's its design. Because if you step outside of that, it loses all power. Because the principality is also bound by time. But you and I are not if we believe. Does this make sense? You say, well, you're just denying, you're just denying reality. No, I'm stepping into a different one. Because if you think this body is actually it and it's all there is, I don't even know why you're here. The very fact that you believe that there's a heaven <coughs> means you're going into a reality that's going to trump this one. Right? And this is why Jesus tells us to pray his kingdom would come. <coughs> Healing. Stepping out of our reality and his. Right? Why? The Bible says, by his stripes we... No, it says we were healed. Past sense. True or not? So you understand faith not only accesses the future, but also accesses the past. Not your demonic past, but his holy, moral, pure, righteous past that he had set up for you before you got here. By his stripes, we were healed. We, by faith, believe in what he did in the past. That brings it into this reality and makes it real. We have to know, right, where we came from and where we're going. We step into what has been completed. 
because he asks us to. You with me? Paul steps outside of time to validate time itself. And time needs some validity, especially in our world. (laughs) We bring a reality back to time. A sense of being, a sense of belonging, a sense of peace, a sense of hope, a sense of, of grace, a sense of existence, of purpose. That's what people need, don't they? Listen to this, verse 5. That God was kind and decided that Christ would choose us to be his own adopted children. I'm going to close with this statement because I don't have time to get through the rest of the chapter. Do you see that? That he predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the pleasure of his goodwill. Do you realize he's writing to people who understand this ancient idea of adoption? Do you understand even in our culture that if you ever adopt a child, you, can't, you have to include them in the inheritance. You can't just not. Like, you cannot include your own children in the inheritance, but you have to include the adopted children in the inheritance. You have to. In other words, in the, in the, in the ancient culture, the adopted son technically had more rights than the natural-born son. So let me say it this way. Paul starts the letter to establish people so that by the time they get to chapter 6, right, they have the authority of God. He says, you've been adopted. Let me, let me say it this way. Adam could not have been adopted before he fell away. Because he's, he was a natural born son. But as a natural-born son, he retained the ability to have his inheritance in constant jeopardy. True or not? And which would you rather be? The one who's absolutely morally perfect, but constantly having to look over your shoulder knowing that your inheritance is in constant jeopardy if you do anything wrong? Or... The fact that you screwed up and got disinherited as a natural born son. And then God, by his grace, decides to adopt you back into the family, thus securing for you a more secure inheritance that you can never lose, regardless of how bad you are. So in other words, it's like this. God loved us so much that he let us fall away from him so that we could never be removed from him again. And yet this moment in time that consumes all of us, of that moment we fell away, we use against God when he actually allowed it to happen to bring us to a more secure identity. That the fact that you fell away postures you in a place where he says, you can never be removed from me again. God in his wisdom used our free will knowing we would walk away and orchestrated it so perfectly that our walking away brought us back to him for forever. 
This is how he starts Ephesians. We're only in verse 5. It takes one man, one woman to step outside of their reality to believe what God had for them to change an entire generation or an entire city. And yet we're still focused on our past and what we did wrong and walking in with our heads held down because of what we've done in our past or what people have done to us. And we're walking around just with our shoulders slumped when God said, that actual sin brought you to my adoption. And I wanted to adopt you because if I could adopt you, I could never disinherit you again. This is his love for us. And so many Christians are sin conscious. And they don't see what God had for them from eons past. If they would just step into the reality of believing what God intended for them. And to stand up and say, I may be broken. I may be human. But I'm adopted. And I was chosen. And God loves me. And I will see his plan for my life. And I will not be powerful enough to break it. What if that happened in your life? And you stated those types of things right after you messed up. You know what would happen? The principality would lose immediate power over you. You would lose immediate power over your mind. You would remove from him the ability to use that sin against you. And you would take that sin and bring it to the cross, what Jesus prayed for. And you'd say, Lord, you paid for this sin. Have it. It's yours. It's not mine. You own it. It's not who I am. I'm not my sin. I'm an adopted son. And you remove anything inside of me that caused me to go that way in the first place. Because you exposed something in me that's not according to your nature. And I thank you that you exposed it for a reason. Not so that you could condemn me with it. So that I would never have to deal with it again. While the enemy's beating you with the reality of the exposure of your flesh. God's trying to use it to bring you back to the feet of his son. Where you were originally authored in the first place. But this isn't true for you if you aren't born again. If you're not born again, you're lost in darkness. You're lost in your sin. You're going to run into a cycle of religion trying to make yourself better and stop your drinking and stop your this and stop your that. And eventually you won't be able to. And you'll realize you won't be able to because you're caught in a cycle. Because there is no hope for those who persist in running from God until they turn back to God. But once they turn back to God and come back to the original origin, God says, welcome home. I've signed the adoption papers in the blood of my son. God was very kind to us because of the son. He dearly loves us and we should praise God.
I hope you learn to master your mind, to train your brain, to renew your mind to a reality that predates your current one. And you come into his reality that he has his hand on you just as the way he had his hand on Saul. And the process you're in, though painful, is necessary. But if you begin to believe what God has for you, then the shame and the demonic influence and the unbelief and the doubt and the self-hate and the pain and the rejection will begin to fall off. And when it begins to fall off, what will happen is that in that area of your life, you will gain an authority over a principality. And the next time you meet that in someone else, you can look at them and say, you need to recognize your origin. And it will mean something. Because it's who you are now, not something you know. This is why those demons, Paul I know, Jesus I know, you're still obeying me. If you operate in fear and rejection, unforgiveness, self-hate, condemnation, critical censorious natures, judgment, bitterness, lust, greed, and then want to come to church and tell the demon to leave you alone? Your revelation is only as powerful as the transformative nature it's had in you. We need to stop trying to convince people of our spiritual theological greatness and start living in a way that makes principalities shudder. That when we walk through life, you think it's a small thing to forgive, but it scares the principalities to death. Do you realize that every time you forgive, you're going to war against something bigger than you and you come out a victor? How humiliating it must be for a giant principality to be removed, to be beaten by a babe in Christ. I want you to understand the power of the adoption that Christ has called us into. You were chosen before you rejected. This is why the enemy loves to use self-hate. Because if he gets you to hate what God loves, you have no authority in the realm of the Spirit. Let's stand. Some of you need to forgive yourself for not forgiving yourself. Because I'm telling you what, if somebody held one of my kids hostage, I'd be upset. And yet, ironically, you're holding yourself hostage and you're trying to please God at the same time. 
So just take a second. Just close your eyes. Say, Father, forgive me for not believing your eternal power and the calling you have on my life. And I forgive myself and I forgive others and I ask you to forgive me. And I ask, Father, to be redeemed, to be brought back to the knowledge of my adoption, which predated my reality. Help me in Jesus' name. Amen.